Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, as always rejoicing in your salvation and the promise of your son's return in the wonderful, wonderful future you've destined for us, despite the trials of this life in this world that is like getting ever so dark. Yet as this dark gets darker, Lord, we know it's darkest before the dawn when your son returns. Let us study these things now, Lord God, to equip ourselves to glorify your name, to proclaim your way of salvation while there is still time and means to do it, and to build up your son's body and to be edified ourselves by your spirit from your word, all to the praise of your glory and to our blessing. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Be with us. Exodus chapter nine, please. We're looking at the judgments on the cattle and the boil and the hails. Quite a lot of judgment. Now remember, we're not just looking at these things in terms of what did happen, but we're looking at their ramifications prophetically for the future. They do help us to understand what is going to transpire at the close of the age, particularly in the book of Revelation. But I begin in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field and on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, and on the herds, and on the flocks. Now, of course, we are told in the Olivet Discourse, translated into Greek from the Septuagint, that there will be pestilences, pestilences in the last days, and these are pestilences. Hence, these pestilence judgments foreshadow things that are going to happen again when God's judgment is poured out on the kingdom of Antichrist and false prophet. But let's look at this. Once more, God does not say, let my people go three days into the wilderness. Now he's demanding again, just let them go. Just let them go. Pharaoh, yes, a type of the Antichrist, but a figure of the devil. He does not want to let us go. He does not want to let us, he has no intention of letting us go. When he lies, he speaks of his own nature. He was a liar from the beginning. He has no intention of letting us go. It was the Lord who saved us out of Egypt, and it is the Lord who will rapture us out of Egypt. Again, the Exodus being a type of the rapture and resurrection. Nonetheless, let's look. Go to Pharaoh and say this to him. If you refuse and continue to hold them, or if you go on holding them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. It's specific. Now, it's most serious on the cows. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice it begins with horses. In the ancient Near East generally, and in Egypt certainly, as we see in Isaiah chapter 30 and 31, horses were animals of war. They were for being mounted as the ancient equivalent of cavalry, 
and they were for pulling chariots. That's what they were for. They were fearless animals. They are fearless animals, but they are there. Um, again, steeds that are specifically trained for warfare are quite fearless, but they are there, and they are there as animals of war. They are animals of war. No horses, no chariots, no horses, no cavalry. No horses. Your military is not in very good shape. So the judgment on the horses would have to do with God's judgment on Egypt as a military power. Now, it's unrelated to our subject tonight, but we see God's judgment on Egypt as a military power, very much the central theme in the book of Nahum. In the book of Nahum, much later, we see the same thing, God's judgment on Egypt as a military power. But the judgment on horses would be a judgment on, uh, on Egypt's military power, okay? The next thing we see are donkeys, donkeys, hamorim. Donkeys are beasts of burden, used for pulling carts and used in construction. No donkeys, no local transport, and no construction. They use them to, to, to as hoists to pull lines for pulleys as cranes. They use them for a lot of things. They certainly use them for local transport they were beasts of burden, absolutely essential to construction. Think of a construction project without any bulldozers or, or steamrollers or, or uh, diggers. Just think of them. Uh, they, they're not going to get too far. You need steam shovels. You need bulldozers. You need diggers. Well, you need donkeys in the ancient world. Think of an army without armament, that is, without tanks. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for ar an armor division in the modern Israeli army is sherion, comes from the word chariot. <laughs> the Israelis see tanks as, mod as, as modern equivalent of the ancient chariots. Um, you know, no donkeys, no construction, no horses, no chariots. Well, what's the next one? The next one we see are camels. Donkeys and horses, particularly horses, had a bit of a better chance if you had adequate water supplies and you knew where the oasis was. But the only way to travel across the Sahara, which was on the west of Egypt, of the Nile, or across the Sinai on the east of the Nile, or into the wilderness of Arabia, that is a camel. A camel is the ship of the desert. No, no long-range transportation. Long-range transportation could only be done by ships, or if it was terrestrial, it had to be done by camels in that environment. You needed camels. You can still see, I've, I've been from Morocco to Egypt, you can still see camels are essential for Bedouins. In the wilderness, even in Israel, in the Negev, you see camels are still there with the Bedouins. To this very day, they're important animals for, for transport in desert environments in that particular habitat. You can't get anywhere without them in the ancient world. Now, in the modern world, there are other kinds of vehicles that can negotiate the desert terrain. But in the ancient world, no camels, no long-term terrestrial transportation. So the judgments on these animals 
on the horses would be a judgment on their military. Judgment on their donkeys would be a judgment on their short-term, um, sh sorry, uh, local transport and construction capacity. A judgment on camels would be a judgment on their long-term travel capacity through the deserts. And then it says on their flocks. Now let's look, verse four. Um, the last days are going to be like this, and these things have always been true historically. We see this in the book of Daniel. God's judgments on Babylon were judgments on their military. God's judgments on uh, Egypt, again, in the book of Nahum, judgments on the military. A nation will decline as a military power. Now, no nation in history has ever been a military power unless it was a formidable economic power. So these things work synergistically. When you destroy the infrastructure, the capacity to build, the capacity to produce food, when you destroy the infrastructure, it doesn't matter how big the military is, it's not going to work. I think in my own lifetime and our lifetime of most of us, the Soviet Union, the Soviets had a humongous Warsaw Pact. It was absolutely much bigger than NATO, far more tanks, far more everything. But it had certain problems that it couldn't cope with. One, it couldn't rely on the reliability of the other countries in the alliance. It could only rely on the party bureaucrats who ran the communist parties in Hungary and Poland and Czechoslovakia and so forth. But the people didn't like Stalinism or Sovietism. Um, Hungary tried to rebel against, against the Soviets. Um, Czechoslovakia tried to rebel against the Soviets. So well, you'd have a dictator like Jaruzelski controlled by the Kremlin in Poland, the Soviets couldn't be sure that the Polish people would fight NATO, would fight the British and the Americans on behalf of, 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 the, of Russia and, and the Soviets. They couldn't rely on, on these people. Of, of, of these other countries. Huge military, but they didn't have the loyalty of anybody but the Russians. Now, uh, the only way they were able to get loyalty from these countries is to make it to the economic advantage of these countries in post-war Europe, but it didn't happen. Stalin turned against the Jews, the Soviets became enemies of the Jews, and, and then they obviously were persecuting Christians. They made themselves enemies of God. They were under God's judgment. Um, well, it didn't matter how big of a military the Soviets had, the horses were gone. They, they had all these old T-72 tanks and things, but they didn't work. You look now, even in the Ukraine, they've got all these weapons and things, but they don't work that well. They don't work that well. Their overall economy in Russia is in decline. Even the energy economy in Russia is in decline. Once a country declines economically, it will decline strategically. If a country is formidable economically, it's easy to build a military. You can do it fairly quickly. Five, 10 years, you can get something. Japan is doing it now in the face of the threat of China. Japan has a technology and an economic base to do it. Well, why do I speak of these things? These things you see happening now in the Middle East, these things you see happening in Europe, these things are all of prophetic significance, but they have their origins 
in scripture. They have their origins in scripture. One of the things that happens is a nation is judged economically, and as a result, its military becomes impotent. Its military becomes impotent, no matter how big it is. It doesn't work anymore. Well, that's what you see God doing to Egypt. He's destroying their economy. He's destroying their infrastructure in terms of transportation, their capacity to construct, and he's destroying their military. A combination of judgments coming against a wicked nation. Judgments tend to come in combination. It becomes economic. It becomes a judgment on the infrastructure. It becomes a judgment on the food supply, the agriculture. It becomes ultimately a judgment on the military, a strategic judgment. These patterns that you see in the book of Exodus have been true throughout recorded history, even into our lifetime, but they're going to be very true in the book of Revelation. We're going to see these same kinds of judgments all the way forward to the Battle of Armageddon and the Battle of, 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 of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, all the way to Armageddon and Jehoshaphat. There'll be a judgment on the armies of, 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 of the Antichrist, of Satan, of course, of the world. We see the four horsemen. There will be a judgment on food supplies. There's going to be these same judgments happening again. But we have to understand what it meant in the Exodus, what it meant, because this is a paradigm for God's judgment throughout history and other nations that we see most clearly in Nahum and in Daniel, but looking forward to Revelation. Well, let's continue. It goes on, verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Now, we know that the sons of Israel were concentrated geographically in the land of Goshen, because that is the Nile Delta where the straw came from. That is the Nile Delta where the straw came from, that they needed to make bricks in kilns. They needed to make the bricks in kilns. It's important to understand the Sitzumneben and, and the cultural background to understand the text. Okay. Verse five, and the Lord will set a definite time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the morrow and all the livestock of the Egyptians died. But of the sons of, of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and did not let the people go. Now you think of cows. Cows are needed for dairy produce. Cows are needed for meat. Cows are needed for things like the hide to make leather and things like this. But the Egyptians had a cow god, Hathor, Hathor, very, very much akin to Hinduism. The cows were sacred. Now we have to understand the sacred nature of these cows to them. It's like India. You go to India today, cows are allowed to cause traffic jams. Nobody will do anything because the cows are sacred to the Hindus. I've seen it. I've been stuck in traffic jams caused by cows. 
literally in big cities, traffic, traffic congestion being just caused by cows. The cows, the rights of the cows trump the rights of the humans. Unbelievable. Well, there was a major military battle recorded in history that Egypt lost because their enemies put cows between them and the Egyptians. So when they shot at the Egyptians, the Egyptians couldn't shoot back for fear of the cows being caught in the crossfire. They had sacred cows. Again, the best way to understand this is by comparing it to, to contemporary Hinduism, the sacred cows. But from this worship of uh, the cow god of Hathor, we get the golden calves. The golden calf made by Aaron and the golden calf that would later be made by Jeroboam in uh, the 10 Northern tribes at Dan and uh, near Bethel. Two sins of the golden calves, one by Jeroboam and the first one with Aaron, when Aaron gave in to the public pressure when Moses was on the mountain. So the very thing that God judges here in their backslidden state, the people revert into. They go to the gods of the Egyptians. They go back into the Hathor worship after seeing what God did to Hathor. Now, cows were a symbol of maternity, of fertility, obviously the, the milk production, obviously, you know, meat, etc. These were sacred animals. Now, they, unlike the Hindus, they would eat them. They would eat beef. Unlike the Hindus, they would eat beef, but they wouldn't slaughter beef. You just let it die and eat the carrion, <laughs> supposedly. But it was a sacred cow. God judges their food supply. So you have a judgment on the military. You have a judgment on the food supply. You have a judgment on the infrastructure. Well, just think of the four horsemen of Revelation. Okay, just think of the four horsemen of Revelation when Antichrist comes in the character of Pharaoh. Let's have a very, very brief look. Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. The first seal is opened. Okay. The one coming on the white horse, imitating Christ's return in Revelation 19, we have the Antichrist in Revelation 6 2. Okay. He's like Pharaoh. Then you've got the red horse, a war. Okay. Then you've got the famine. That's the next horse. He broke the seal. Come up here and I'll show you. And there was a black horse with the scales and there was a judgment on the food supply. And then, of course, there was the fourth one, which was death. And they go berserk. They go berserk and try to kill all the Christians. Well, that is what Pharaoh did. As these judgments unfolded on these things, the agriculture, the economy, the military, and so forth. Ultimately, he tried to wipe out the Hebrews, the Israelites. He foreshadows what Antichrist is going to do. When these judgments begin to come, he tries to take it out on the believers. And then, once the church is removed and rescued, what's left of it, or the church won't be here, but the believers will be rescued, He's going to turn against Israel. But to understand this, we have to look at the Old Testament shadow, 
The Old Testament shadow illustrates how these things are going to play out. We're not just studying Exodus, we're studying Revelation. Let's look. It goes on. Now the food supply gets hit, the meat, okay? But of the sons of Israel, nothing happened to them. God protects them. Again, uh, I think what Chris from Poland pointed out last week, this does parallel the anointing of the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. Absolutely. Um, it's not the same, but it certainly parallels it. Now, let's continue looking now. We see the judgment on the cows, which is the judgment on Hathor. And this helps us to understand how serious the sin of Aaron was when they made the golden calf and how serious the sin of Jeroboam was. They went back to this very thing that God had judged, the worship of Hathor and the cow worship. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln. Now, they obviously would have had a lot of kilns and a lot of soot because they were making bricks. They were taking the straw and they were making the bricks in the kilns. And let Moses throw it towards the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh made them gather their own straw and would not re reduce the quota of bricks they were required to make. Hard taskmasters, they were slaves in Egypt. This is commemorated in the Paschal Seder and in the Haggadah Passover time to this day. Now let's understand this. What they were doing to God's people, forcing them to make the bricks for Pharaoh under oppressive conditions, making them get the straw themselves and then make the bricks without reducing the quantity of bricks that had to be produced, despite the fact that they also had to now get their own straw. This very thing became the instrument of God's judgment against them. The things that Satan does, that the world does, the things that ultimately the Antichrist and false prophet will do to the saints of God, these things will become God's instruments of judgment against them in some way. They're oppressing them, making them make these bricks for Pharaoh, so they take the soot from the kiln and they throw it up. Well, you wouldn't have had that if <laughs> to that degree, but they did it. The very thing they do against the people of God comes against them. The very thing they do against the people of God comes against them. I once spoke to a German guy who used to tune my piano in, in Manhattan, and I was a, a young believer at the time, but he used to tune, to tune the piano. And he was a nice guy, but he was a baby in Dresden, Germany. And he told the story of how he was in a carriage when the Allies bombed Dresden, and his mother managed to get him out but most of the people who died in Dresden didn't burn, they asphyxiated. The Allied bombing created a firestorm that created its own weather system and devoured the oxygen 
in the city and people just had no oxygen to breathe and they were dying. And then their corpses got burned up and everything was destroyed. Now this happened at a time when Hitler and Himmler were going for their final solution. Once they knew they were going to lose the war, they had the ovens in the concentration camps going 24 seven, even cases of kicking people, even children alive into the ovens without putting them in the gas chamber first. That is how demonically possessed Hitler was and his henchmen. They wanted to take as many Jews with them as they could once the war was not going in their favor. This began after the battle, when the Germans lost the Battle of the Bulge in, in, in Belgium, that was their last hope in the Western Front. And when the Soviets crossed the Alder River in the Eastern Front, that's, they knew they had no way, to, no possible way to win. No possible, just take as many Jews with us as we can. And Hitler was blaming the Jews in his rantings for what was happening. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. My, uh, my wife is in France at the moment, and the Muslims were protesting the shooting of a Muslim youth who was in a vehicle driving in a bus lane at high speed, speeding in a bus lane illegally, and the police pursued him, and he tried to get away from the police driving at high speed in an urban area, and the traffic forced him to stop. And the police finally caught up with him, and when they caught up with him, then he tried to take off again, endangering other people, and a policeman shot him. Now the policeman is in trouble. <laughs> I hope he gets off. But the Muslims began rioting in Paris and in other cities in, in, in France, including Marseille, which has the second biggest Jewish and the second biggest Muslim population after Paris or the banlieue that surrounds Paris. And one of the things that they were doing is blaming the Jews for what happened. Now, why were these Algerian Arab Muslims blaming the Jews for this incident where a criminal was shot by a policeman? Uh, I'm not saying he should have been or shouldn't have been. I am saying he was a criminal and he was recklessly endangering other people. Yet they blame the Jews for it. Well, the world will always blame the people of God. The world will always blame the sons of God. Think of what happened when Rome burned under Nero. Who did Nero blame? He blamed the Christians. He blamed the Christians. And of course, he martyred Paul and Peter in, in Rome at the time. Well, you blame the Christians. That's what Nero did. You know, blame the Christians. Pharaoh blamed the Hebrews. Antichrist and false prophet are going to blame the Christians, then they're going to blame the Hebrews, the Jews. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to follow the same pattern that we see in the book of Exodus. It's always going to be in line with this pattern, at least broadly speaking. So it happens. As these judgments multiply, he becomes more and more desperate to blame the people of God. Now look at verse 8. While Hathor was the cow god, there was a god of the Egyptian version of medical science. And I recall a 
presentation that Chuck Missler did on medical science in Egypt, but it was not science. It was folk medicine and it was crazy. And they particularly ascribed medicinal powers and properties. Well, they mixed it with the occult and superstition and so forth, of course, but they ascribed a therapeutic value to the excrement of insects, particularly flies. <laughs> that was their penicillin. <laughs> I don't know. That's what they did. Well, uh, now we know what flies represent in the Bible from the Lord of the Flies in the Book of Kings. Um, when they called Jesus Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, said he was of Satan. We know flies represent demons. When you chase a fly away, seven more come back. You know, you um, flies represent the demonic in, in, in Hebrew thought, in biblical thought. Well, the Egyptians ascribed a lot of superstitious belief in the healing properties of these flies, which was not really predicated on science as we would understand science. They thought these things worked because of some kind of superstitions they had. And the god of this, they had a god of their healing arts, which was uh, Imahop, Imahop. Um, he was the Egyptian god of, of healing. Now you're going to see God's judgment on their national health system. You're going to see God's judgment on their Kaiser Permanente. You're going to see God's judgment on Blue Shield and Blue Cross. You're going to see God's judgment on the NHS. We've already seen God's judgment on the NHS in Britain, but you know what I mean. A judgment on their health system. This was specifically a judgment on their God of the healing arts. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln. Let Moses throw it in the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It'll become fine dust all over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, again, this is one of the judgments commemorated in the Paschal Seder. And these things, of course, would have become infected. And because of their belief in the medicinal properties of fly vomit and fly excrement and things like this, this would have these would have been agents of infection. They would have been would have caused infection. Infection, of course, can result in fever and inflammation. It, they just made it worse and worse. Becomes fine dust. So they took the soot from the kiln, stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the sky, and it became boils, breaking out with sores on man and beast. And the magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, Jonas and Jambres, etc., could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Physician, heal yourself, except you're not a real physician, you're a quack. You're a demonic practitioner of occult arts. They themselves were afflicted. They were powerless. Now, you will understand where you have this. The general term we use is shamanism. You see it in the Far East, certainly. You see it in Taoism, in Chinese, with yin and yang, and, and with 
with the, it underlines acupuncture comes from the same root of it. Now that's another subject, but it, in North America, the shamans were called of North American Indians. They were called um, medicine men. In Africa, some gourmets sometimes they called were called witch doctors. <laughs> they closely associate, and you you got it in in, in Hindu. Uh, uh, you have it in Hinduism as well, but you certainly also have it in Voodoo and in Santeria, which is like Hispanic Voodoo. You've got these things. They associate occult practices with healing arts, with healing arts, a counterfeit of medical science, but healing arts. There's an occult aspect to their healing arts, and their healing arts are very much rooted in the occult. And they're doing things that, that 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 are silly, but they believe it because their idolatrous beliefs render them ignorant. Well, let's continue to look. Verse 12, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he didn't listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken. Once again, he hardens his heart. Now, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Let them go that they may, not that they may sacrifice to me, that they may serve me. Let them go. No strings attached. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me on earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have cut, been cut off from the earth. But indeed for this cause I've allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name great throughout the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Now, God let Pharaoh survive to make an example of him to teach about God's true power against false power. But this is for us. We have a situation where God allowed Pharaoh to survive not just to teach the nations and the Hebrews of that time, but he's teaching us. It's in the book of Revelation. What God did to Pharaoh, he's going to do to Antichrist and false prophet. The, what he did to Pharaoh's magicians, he's going to do to Antichrist and false prophet. Now let's look at these boils. Turn with me, please, if you will, to the book of Revelation chapter 16. The seven vials of wrath, or the, the first. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven vials of the wrath of God into the earth. Now again, this didn't happen to the Hebrews. It only happened to the Egyptians. Same in the book of Revelation. We are not appointed unto wrath. The first angel went and poured out his vial into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon men 
who had the mark of the beast and had worshipped his image. Notice God's judgment comes in the form of these same kinds of infected boils, sores, that happened in Exodus. And it's going to happen to all those who take the mark of the beast. You take the mark on your skin, where is the judgment going to come? On the epidermis, on the skin. But it is going to replay what happened in the book of Exodus. Now, on a broader level, let's look at chapter 9 in Revelation. Verse 21, all these judgments are happening. We're talking about the trumpet judgments now. Okay. And these are, of course, quite terrible. But we are told in verse 21, they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor their thefts. Pharaoh wouldn't repent as the judgments multiplied and as the power and anger of God was poured out in judgment. He still did not repent. The Egyptians did not repent. Well, that happens in Revelation. Even as the judgments multiply, they still did not repent of their murders. Now, be careful of those who propagate this silly myth that when the rapture happens, the rapture is going to ignite a big revival on the earth among the people who are not raptured. That is nonsense. That is nonsense. There's no such teaching in scripture. After the rapture, men still did not repent. They still didn't repent. You don't see anything like it. You see the salvation of Israel and you see certain other things, but you don't see any kind of a great revival. <laughs> no. Wickedness becomes more wicked and the people like Pharaoh still will not repent. Just look at the Exodus. The Exodus tells us how it's going to happen and it even tells us why. Okay. Still, you exalt yourself against my people. Antichrist is going to exalt himself down to his last, last second of capacity to do so before the Lord deals. He's not going to give up. He's going to be like Pharaoh. What is God like? Well, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's what God is like. Well, what is Satan like? Well, look at Antichrist. Well, what is Antichrist like? Well, among others, look at Pharaoh. Look at Pharaoh. Verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, that kind of phrasing is something you repeatedly see about the close of the age. You see it concerning the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30. This has not happened before. You see it in Daniel 12, something in time of distress such as not happened before. Jesus speaking of the great tribulation, nothing this bad has ever happened before, nor will happen again. 
will you see that same kind of language. It is going to be something singularly unique in its unfathomable, unfathomable terror. This hail. Now, turn with me again to the book of Revelation. I think we've mentioned this, but we'll just touch on it again briefly. The book of Revelation, look at the seventh trumpet judgment. The kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and his Messiah. But we see, well, I'm looking for it. It says that there is these hail, hail judgments, these hail judgments. Uh, in verses 13 and 14, the two preceding verses, an hour there was a great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell, and all of these terrible things began, these terrible things began to happen. Okay. Now look at Revelation chapter 17 of 16. The seventh bowl of wrath. What do we see? Peals of thunder, great earthquake, such as never been before, and these things are not going to happen again. But when he pours it out with these flashes of lightning, what happens? Huge, great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Just as it said in Exodus, it was going to be something which was extremely, extremely severe. In Revelation um, yeah, 16, 9, we see men were scorched with this fiery heat that had the power over these plagues. Notice it was a combination of cold and hot. The hailstones would be mixed with fire. Hence, with the bowls of wrath, you see heat mixed with coldness. Heat mixed with coldness. Now, I'm not trying to make a theological statement, but I am making an observation. One of the things that happens as we get closer to the return of the Lord are extreme weather changes. That's clear, extreme weather changes. We are going to see brutal heat and brutal cold. Brutal heat and brutal cold. The judgments on Egypt involved brutal heat and brutal cold. In Revelation, we see brutal heat and brutal cold with, with, with the hailstones, obviously. Okay. That's what happens. And that is what is going to happen. Once more, we're not just looking at the past, we are looking at the future. Well, we have a very ugly and difficult situation. A very ugly and difficult situation. People did not repent in Egypt, even as these judgments multiplied and were poured out. And they are not going to repent again. They're just not going to repent again. Well, back to Exodus 9. Notice God gives a warning in verse 19. 
Therefore, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. God actually warns Pharaoh the destruction is coming. You can save yourself and you can save your livestock, what's left of it, if you listen to me. But he who paid, but he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Some of them apparently listened to God. Some of them apparently listened to God. We are told the gospel of the kingdom will be preached from the sky. We are told there's a ministry of the two witnesses. We are told God has a special, as it were, I use the word sparingly, and for want of a better term, dispensation for the Jews at this time. Once the church is removed, or the believers are removed, there's no church anymore, obviously, and then the believers are removed, okay? But that's not to say that God will not be dealing with people as individuals. He will be dealing with people as individuals, not as nations. The only nation he will be dealing with as a nation is Israel. He'll be dealing with Israel as a nation. Everything else, he's dealing purely with people as individuals. Some of them may actually listen. Some of them may actually listen. Whatever the 144,000, the two witnesses, etc. some of them may listen. Most will not. Most will not. Okay. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock out in the field. We proclaim the word of the Lord. We tell people, we tell homosexuals, look, the Bible says this is morally wrong, it's unnatural, it's perverted in God's eyes, and you will reap the consequences in your own flesh of doing this. It'll reduce your longevity. It'll impact your health adversely. You look at the astronomically high suicide rate among transgender people. It's up to 50%. Now, they don't, we don't believe, we don't care about your born again and your Bible. We, we're gonna do, you don't wanna listen, don't. They won't listen, but they will reap the repercussions of their own rejection of the word of God. Those who reject the word of God will reap its repercussions. Verse 22, now the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire down to earth and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually. Notice a mixture of cold and heat flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Since it became a nation. These are hailstorms of a kind and of a velocity and magnitude that have never, of course, 
been seen or experienced before in all of human history that have never been seen or experienced before in all of human history. But that is what happens. There's silence in heaven for a half hour after the trumpets are blown in the book of Revelation. Angels are there. God is there. The prayers of the saints are there. The judgment is poured out, and it comes again in the form of the same things. The same things. There's no stopping them. In verse 7, after the final trumpet, the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. What happens in Egypt in Exodus 9 happens again with the seventh trumpet. It happens again. I'm sorry, with the seventh, with the seventh, it happens again. And then it happens again after that with the seventh vial. Heat and cold. Destruction. Blood. Let's move on. Verse 25 of Exodus chapter 9. The hail struck all that was in the field throughout the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Now it hits the food supply. Fruit trees. Trees where they would get palm oil trees where they got things that were essential for their sustenance and economy. Hits the crops, hits the fields. Only in that day of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Once more, the people of God are preserved. It doesn't happen in the land of Goshen where they're getting the straw. We can be in a miserable place Humanly speaking, we can be in adverse circumstances. But if it's where God wants us to be, he wants us to be there for a reason. Our safety will always be one way or another, ultimately in the will of the Lord. There were other places in Egypt that were a lot nicer, but they were where God wanted them to be. Let's move on. Verse 27, then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I've sinned. This time the Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are wicked ones. Sounds like King Saul. <laughs> when you see leaders like Pharaoh or like King Saul, they're not regretting their actions. Otherwise, they would repent and turn from them. They are not regretting their actions. They are regretting the consequences of their actions. They're not repenting or regretting their actions or what they did. They regret the ramifications of it. Oh, I've sinned. Yeah, tell me, tell me something I don't know. Make supplication to the Lord, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I'll let you go, and you'll stay no longer. No, the devil never lets go. His power has to be broken by the Lord. And Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I'll spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, not yours, Pharaoh. 
But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God, even after all of that. Now in verse 31, the flax and the barley were ruined. For the barley was in ear, that is ready for harvest, and the flax was in bud. The flax was needed to make garments. The flax was needed to make garments. The barley was needed to make bread. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripen late. Notice you could make bread, cornbread, and you can make bread from wheat. The way the world thinks is the way Pharaoh thought. Well, this is gone and this is gone, but I still have this and this. <laughs> God's judgment comes in stages. It comes on location, upon location. And they think, I can just have this instead of that, or I can go here instead of there. Because everything is not destroyed all at once. They think that they can somehow survive despite the anger and judgment of God. That's the way the world thinks, because it's not destroyed all at once. Now, there's reasons God does not destroy things all at once. Ultimately, he does. Ultimately, he does. But his judgment has always tended to be in stages. Think of the Babylonian captivity. There were four invasions by Nebuchadnezzar. It was in stages, okay? Um, <clears throat> this, then this, then this, then this. The judgments on Egypt are in stages. This, then this, then this, then this. In the book of Joshua, God told Joshua, I'm not going to judge the Canaanites all at once. It's going to be this, then this, then this, then lest the land lie fallow. God has a purpose and not destroying it all at once until the grand finale, until the ultimate climax, until the feet of Jesus stand on the Mount of Olives. That'll be it in the Valley of Jehoshaphat following Armageddon. But let's look. Verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and hail ceased and rain no longer poured on the earth. Oh boy. So now you've got <laughs> thunder, which is the voice of God, a figure of the voice of God. You have the rain, you have the hail, and you have these things happening in concert with each other. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Notice there was no repentance. There was no desire to repent. There was no intent to repent. He simply wanted the judgments of God to stop so he could continue doing what he did. That is the nature of the fallen world. That is the mentality of the God of this world. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. What a situation. It gets worse and worse and worse, and they still don't repent. Well, the close of the age is going to be the same. 
it'll get worse and worse and worse, and it still won't repent. We will see judgments in the elements, the combination of heat and cold. That's going to happen. And of course, we see the hailstones again, ultimately in the fire in the book of Revelation. And we see a judgment on transportation, economy, infrastructure, and military power happening synergistically. That is what happened to Egypt. That is what is going to happen to the kingdom of Antichrist, to the kingdom of this world. So it's going to happen. When we look at these things, we study what happened, not just to know what happened. We, of course, study these things to know what is going to happen and to an increasingly formidable degree, what is happening now already. It's moving this way. How quickly? I don't know, but it's moving a lot more quickly than it ever did in my lifetime, that's for sure. We are seeing these things play out. I want to understand the book of Revelation because it's the only book in the Bible that has a special blessing for reading it. Not that the other books are not blessed, but Revelation has a special blessing. It is the ultimate revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the ultimate revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. But I'm never going to understand it, and neither are you, unless I understand Ezekiel, unless I understand Zechariah, unless I understand Isaiah, unless I understand Daniel, and unless I understand Exodus.